As Christians, we often talk about how Jesus was a good teacher, a miracle worker, a gracious friend, and ultimately our Savior and Lord. And while all those things are true, we don't often put Jesus in the category of genius, even though any study of his teachings in the New Testament would prove that to be the case. My guest today is Peter Williams, and he uses the famous story of the prodigal son to unpack how Jesus was a genius in the way that he taught during his earthly ministry. Exploring the intentional literary mastery that Jesus displayed in and through his words, Williams allows us to go deeper into a parable that most of us think we know by heart. He also offers advice on how to read Jesus' words in the Gospels in a way that we begin to notice our Savior's genius and the incredible depth of scripture as a whole. Peter Williams is the principal of Tyndale House, Cambridge, the chair of the International Greek New Testament Project, and a member of the ESV Translation Oversight Committee. He's also the author of The Surprising Genius of Jesus, What the Gospels Reveal About the Greatest Teacher from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Peter, thank you so much for joining me again on the Crossway Podcast. Great to be with you. It's great to talk again. Today, we're going to look at the parable of the prodigal son, as we often refer to it, Uh, although you have a different name for it that we'll get into in a minute, and explore in particular um, the purpose of looking at this parable is to look at how Jesus uh, used his teaching. It was uh, so intelligent and clever and even a genius, you call him, in how he taught to the people who are listening to him. And kind of we're going to use this parable as a jumping off point for that. But before we jump into that story, why is it worth taking the time to notice Jesus's cleverness, his genius, as you call it? Well, I think we should notice everything about Jesus. Jesus is the most interesting human who's ever existed. And you say that, but do you do you mean that as like a you've experienced that you really feel that, or is that like something that we should feel? But I don't know. We don't. Well, I'll go for both. I mean, I, I do think that uh, he is the most interesting person I've ever encountered. But also, you, you can derive it from the fact that he's God. But just the breadth of teaching that we have. Mm. It is extraordinary, and so I, I want people to get a fresh enthusiasm for that. Because yeah. I, th- I think that sometimes we can domesticate Jesus, uh, you, you can begin learning about him so early, and so simply that you don't think that there's really a, a masterclass that Jesus can give you. There's a, there's a, there are deeper levels, and I, I think Jesus does have those levels, even as he maintains his simplicity always. Yeah, there, there can be a, a certain familiarity with Jesus. And, and even when we talk about being passionate or excited about Jesus, so often it's in the realm of love for him and affections for him, which are obviously great. But I, I, what I appreciate about what you're doing here is you're trying to maybe excite our intellectual appreciation for Jesus and for how he thinks and how he teaches, which I think is something that we don't often talk about. Yeah, and, and so I, I think that he's, you know, he's the cleverest person ever to have walked this planet. Mm. And so we should appreciate him for that as, as well as many other things. Yeah, so let's jump in then to what you would say is the maybe the best segment of teaching that Jesus does that kind of underscores or illustrates his cleverness. And you point to the, the parable of the prodigal son. 
Why, why don't you like that name for the parable? Well, I mean, it's not a bad name, but it doesn't cover everything. So 62% is about the younger brother who goes away and 38% about the older brother at home. And both of those are meant to be there. So I, I prefer to call it the parable of the two sons. The other aspect of the parable of the prodigal son is it emphasizes the prodigal gun, son's sin. And that's legitimate, but it's actually something the older brother wants to do. The older brother's convinced that the younger brother has been wasting his money with prostitutes, even though he, the younger brother clearly has not been sending back postcards from the brothel mm -hmm. uh, describing his activities. So he's projecting there. And the younger son is prodigal and unlucky because not, what he does is he spends all his money uh, having made bad choices, but he is also unlucky that the, the one place he chose to emigrate to is the, the country that gets hit by the Great Famine. Right. We well, forget about the famine sometimes. People often forget. So he's prodigal and unlucky. So I think there's two sons uh, and we should try and take a, a yeah. global book. But, but at the end of the day, the parable of the prodigal son, it's not a bad name. It captures a lot of what's in that. So without getting into the details, which we'll do in just a minute, why do you say that this parable of Jesus is perhaps a preeminent place to see most clearly his genius? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. I mean, it's his longest parable, so close to three minutes long. Which and doesn't seem very long, which actually. Which doesn't seem very long. But yeah, some of them are just phenomenally short. But also because it's very clear in Luke that he's got this double audience where he's got tax collectors and sinners on the one hand and scribes and Pharisees on the other. And what I think we can see is a very clear example of him teaching at two levels. Mm. So he teaches, telling a story that will work if you have no biblical background, if you're a sinner who's not at all interested in scripture, it should speak to you. And if you're a scribe who actually spends his life copying out the scriptures, it should speak to you. So I think that's a very clever thing to do. Mm. And so Jesus doesn't fill every one of his stories with as much Old Testament as I think we find in this case. And so I, I just want to to bring that up to people. Yeah. So help us understand a little bit more of the context when, when Jesus actually tells this parable. Like what's going on around him? What's just happened before in, in the narrative? And uh, even what's coming ahead? How does this fit into that? So there are a th a three stories in a row. Well, five stories in a row because you've got the, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, these two, I think, lost sons. Then we have the parable of the unrighteous steward. Then we have the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And the, the, both ones in chapter 16 begin, there were, was a rich man. One had an unrighteous steward, the other one is feasting sumptuously every day. And there are lots of connecting phrases between these stories. So obviously the three uh, stories of lost uh, sheep, coin, and sons have connections. The lost sheep gets lost by going away from home. The lost coin gets lost at home. And then Jesus tells a story about a son who gets lost going away from home and then one lost at home, namely the older brother. So I think you can see those first two bits as the warm-up act, if you like, for the main story. Just as a, as a quick yeah. question, as an aside here, I'm sure there's some people listening, I even feel this right now, they hear you making all these connections in this gospel to things that happened before, and, and, and they think, I can never do this. I never see those connections when I read these stories. How do you do that? What's well, the secret think, to seeing these connections? I think a key thing is to read slowly. When you see in the parable of the two sons that the younger son longed to be filled with what the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. And then you are in the next chapter and you read that Lazarus, the poor man, longed to be filled 
with what fell from the rich man's table and along came the dogs and licked his sores. You, you can see this sequence of long to be filmed and that's quite a striking phrase mm. and it's both nearby and one's got followed by pigs and one's followed by dogs and that might remind you of Jesus' saying in Matthew about not giving your what's holy to the dogs or your pearls before swine. But again, it's slowing down to read this, to count phrases, to look at what are the prominent things. We all know these stories at a superficial level after we first heard them once. Now you've got to slow down and try and take more notice. Which kind of works against our maybe natural tendencies sometimes when it comes to our Bible reading is we, we sometimes have a reading plan we're trying to get through and the tendency is just I want to check it off, I want to get it done and there's a, it's harder to be willing to slow down. So I think Bible reading schemes are very and programs very good. One thing we probably should do is vary the speed at which we read a particular passage. So let's say you try and read three chapters of the Bible every day because you want to get through the Bible in a year. That's really good. You get familiar with the whole Bible. But as you're reading the book of Proverbs, you're on overload because each one of those Proverbs is like a lesson in itself. Yeah, and then we, you, we've all felt that. Like, yeah. wow, now we're on to something totally different. And so you can benefit a lot from the Proverbs from reading one a day. Now, the advantage with reading several chapters, you start noticing there are recurring Proverbs and there are variations on a theme Proverbs. So there are advantages of both methods and therefore you should probably use both methods. Mm. Um, so I think it's good to speed up and slow down to vary. And if you always read in exactly the same way, you're likely to see precisely the same things. Mm. Yeah, that's so helpful. So what were some of the other things that you were going to mention about? So, so the last bit of the preceding chapter, uh, chapter 14, is that the one who has ears to hear, hear. That's immediately followed by hearing that tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to hear Jesus. And then the scribes and Pharisees are grumbling, which of course is what Israel does in the desert. And here is this command that God gives that all Israel should hear. And so... It really does set you up with a, a lovely contrast there. Which then, is kind of then mirrored in the actual parable yeah, yeah, itself. Sure. Now, I think that there are two aspects to this. One is, clearly, Luke has a lot of artistry as he does his story. And so he uh, tells the story in the book of Luke. And so it's possible to say, oh, the artistry in Jesus' story actually comes from Luke. Mm. Now, I want, Jesus. I want to make the argument, actually... Luke is a great artist and Jesus is a great artist and you need Jesus's story to have been told to the people Luke reports it of because that's what makes sense of the things that Jesus says in his story because Jesus is making a number of references that would be particularly aimed at scribes and so and Luke says he was talking to scribes so those two things make sense so you can actually make an argument apologetically that we've got to have a really faithful transmission of Jesus's story the actual words of the story, as well as transmission of the context. Mm. So let's dig into the parable itself. Uh, I want to jump right into verse chapter 15, verse 12. This is the, the verse where the younger son approaches his father and asks for his inheritance. And you slow us down a little bit in that, and we kind of help us to understand. We, we all know that the younger son gets his inheritance and, and runs off and, and wastes it. But something happens with the older son there that's maybe a little bit more yeah. hidden. So, so what you see, firstly, the younger son says, father give me my share in of the inheritance. And of course, every time the younger son talks to his father, he calls him father. It happens three times. One of them is, of course, a speech in his head that he's practicing with his father. At the end of the story, 
the older brother does not call his father father. He says, look, the, all these the years. The only time that he speaks to his yeah, father. Yeah, he doesn't call him father. So there's a contrast there in one sense that uh, the younger son is emotionally closer to his father, even if he ends up being physically further away. Mm, for it's a lot of it's almost like prefiguring um, what's going to happen. But the other side is he asks for his share of the inheritance, and then it says the father divides his inheritance between them. Mm. Now, how should the older brother feel at this point? He should feel really grateful to his younger brother. His younger brother has done the dirty work of asking his father for the money. He has just had a huge advance already. He should be eternally indebted to his younger brother. Because the older brother would have received the, the lion's share of the inheritance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Too. So obviously it's a story, so you don't know where it's set. But if it's set in Israel, in Israel, a, an older brother would get double. So he does really well. And, and wherever you imagine it's set, you could imagine that the older brother gets to keep the farm and the younger brother gets the sort of uh, his share of the movable things. Yeah, the and, liquid and the assets. Cash, the liquid assets. So that, that's also a common way that farms are dealt with across cultures. So, but that sort of specific side, we, we, we don't know exactly, but the older brother does really well. He should be eternally grateful. You're, you see the father's generosity. You see a, a behavior that's a bit like Abraham because Abraham's the only other father who gives away his inheritance while he's still alive. Of course, he doesn't divide it equally between his sons because the older son, Ishmael, despises the feast for the younger brother and that's when he actually loses uh, his inheritance, which is, um, I think there's some echoes of that in, in Jesus' story. So, But it's really important to grasp the fact that the older brother has, has this whole thing because then... When at the end, the older brother complains, you never gave me a young goat so that I could eat with my friends, or says, all these years I've been slaving for you, that you realize this is completely wrong. Uh, he's not been slaving for his father. He's been building up his own business the whole time. But mm. he's, although he's a son, he's got the mindset that thinks of himself as a slave. Huh. That is fascinating. Cause that, that theme is going to come up then later with a younger son who who when he decides to go back, he says, maybe I can go back and, and work as a slave. Mm -hmm. But then how is that kind of drawn, that, that ironic difference drawn out further? Yeah, so he, he, he sort of wants to be a hired servant, I suppose. He wants to almost pay his way back and, and, and so on. Um, and the father accepts him as a son straight away. He gives him a ring. He gives him a robe. So anyone who looks at that younger son sees him accepted unconditionally back the father doesn't say a word to the younger son in the story, by the way. It's really interesting. He only talks to the older son. Mm. He doesn't seem to need to say anything to the younger son because his actions have said it. His run, his embrace, his kiss, his giving the robe and the ring says everything and killing the fatted calf. This son is fully reinstated instantly, which of course is a lesson to us because we can always say with people who repent, well, you really need to do your probation yeah, time yeah, now. Prove it. Prove it sincere and so on. And the father doesn't do that. Hmm. So then uh, why don't we know very much about what the younger son does with his inheritance? Uh, you make a point of well, this in the book. So when I was told this story in Sunday school, it was one of those things that one tended to do quite a bit with. You imagined him going to all these parties and spending his money, and then as the bag gets gradually empty, his friends drift away. And it's not wrong to imagine that, but it's interesting that just when Jesus tells the story, he says, you know, he wasted his money living and you could say prodigally, riotously, that there's just one word that sort of encapsulates it all. 
And th there you've got the thought that Jesus in his storytelling doesn't do the big expansion on the sin. Sin is very boring. You're not better off after a story of sin. Mm. But actually, that's the bit of the prodigal son story that modern storytellers want to dwell on. You might have a whole fiction book that effectively is expanding on that aspect. And that's the bit that Jesus moves on from very quickly. Yeah. And then why do you think it is that uh, he includes, again, assuming that Jesus is being very intentional, very economical in the yep. words he's even using in this, why include this bit about this famine? Why include the unlucky portion to the story when it seems to maybe relativize the younger brother's sin yep. and culpability for that? Well, what it does, of course, is it shows the descent of the younger brother. Things get worse. He runs out of money. But it's not just that. They're compounded with something even worse where he, there's a famine and he's starving. And then he has to join a citizen of the country, which sort of rubs in that he's not a citizen. It gives you this wonderful element where it should take away from our judgment of him because you know the older brother wants to say it's entirely his fault, but there's this element that it actually relativizes mm. um, that. Obviously, he is sinful; he does the wrong thing, but that's not all there is uh, to the story. It shows how he needs to be at his wit's end before he finally repents. He has to be brought uh, low enough. So all of those are parts of it and it also gives us a reference back to the Joseph story in Joseph it's called a great famine there aren't that many great famines in the Bible I think a, fam a great famine is probably a, a multi-year famine mm. uh, rather than just a, f a famine intends to be just for one year you lose a harvest that gives you a famine great famine is something bigger and there's a great famine in the days of Joseph and then what you see in Jesus' story is that the son when he comes back is given a ring and a robe just like Joseph was given when he came before Pharaoh and was established as ruler of, of the land. And of course, then the story of Jesus, Jesus tells, has the father saying, my son was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. Well, that's, there's only one other person in the Bible who had a son who he thought was dead and then is alive again, and that's Jacob receiving back Joseph. Huh. So I think there's a richness of allusion to the story of Genesis that's going on. Yeah, there. yeah. What should we make of the job that the younger son has to take? Yeah, so, so I mean, that sort of leads on from the whole famine aspect. If you're a Pharisee listening to Jesus' story, you're really on side for the first bit. Because this story is going very well, mm. because this younger son is getting what he deserves. Yeah, they're he nodding has, their heads like, ah. He is wasting his father's money. Ha! Then he gets hit by a famine. And then he's feeding pigs. And that's good because you want to rub his face in it. Mm. And, and so they're on side almost cheering. And pig, pigs were unclean Pigs are unclean. So, so herding generally is a lowly thing. It's the sort of thing when David had seven older brothers, they were very happy to leave the herding uh, of <laughs> to the, the youngest. sheep. To the youngest. Because at the end of the day, you know, it's quite boring being out at night and you know having to look after uh, the, the sheep it's not high on skill is there something to that in the even the the infancy narratives where we have the shepherds coming yeah yeah well, what's I, going on there just I, to... I think so as in that they're not generally super rich i mean even in the middle east today if you find people who are shepherding animals they're, they're not people with a lot of other choices about their job so that's a brilliant aspect of the story plus this is not just 
herding animals, this is the lowest animal, and you expect it to say that he wanted to eat the pig's uh, food, but it you know, didn't taste nice, or he ate the outer bit, but he didn't even get given the what the pigs rejected. He said he, he wanted to eat the husks, if you like, of the pig's food, the bits the pigs wouldn't even eat, and no one gave him that. Mm. So I think it's it's very... With a great economy of words, Jesus gives you a very dramatic yeah. picture. And again, presumably Jesus knows at this moment, he's to this point in the story, all the Pharisees listening right there, all the scribes are nodding along, sort of approving of where this story is going. Yeah. And and similar than the, the Gentiles who are listening, tax collectors, yeah. they're, they're kind of feeling what? Well, I mean, it's difficult to know how many Gentiles there are because, I mean, the um, tax collectors may be Jews who are mm. collaborating with Romans. They may be, uh, I think, probably more likely in, in this setting. And sinners, likewise, are probably Jews who are not who are in flagrant breach of the things that they should be doing. Mm, okay. Uh, or, uh, according to whether it's the law of the Old Testament or perhaps the law that the Pharisees has added to the Old Testament. But either way, that they're, they're in flag, flagrant breach of that. And uh, yeah, that they're there. I think spoken to really by the son's return but here's someone who's used money the wrong way he's wasted his father's money and has got nothing good to show for it but he comes back and is welcomed and that's just speaks hugely to those who feel the guilt of their sin and everything they've done wrong and they've messed up and the the fact that there's the father there looking watching out to welcome them back that's it i'm sure many of us who have heard this story retold or preached in in uh, churches We'll, we'll know that oftentimes there's a lot made of the way the father receives the mm. son back, the fact that he runs to him, the fact that he embraces him. Yep. Uh, what would you say about that? Is all that genuine, like that this is something that is would have seemed pretty out of the ordinary? Well, it is out of the ordinary. I mean, the, the father, yeah, runs, embraces, and kisses is a very unusual thing because what you expect the father to be angry. The younger brother has wasted all his money. He ought to make him do some some penance and reparations some some biding his time and and he fully accepts him publicly celebrates that and of course it's based off the old testament because the the phrase ran embrace and kisses only occurs one other time in the old testament and that's when jacob having cheated his older brother esau out of everything and gone off into a far country then comes back he's heard that esau's coming to meet him with 400 Armed he's men. afraid he's going to try he's, to kill him. He's very scared. I mean, 400 armed men, that's not going to work out well. And then, surprisingly, Esau runs, embraces, and kisses. Hmm. Uh, and so what Jesus, by using that reference, is showing that even that bad guy in the Old Testament who was cheated out of a lot was willing to forgive. And so that's a challenge uh, to anyone who's like in the young, older brother's situation. The older brother can easily feel that if the younger brother's gone away and spent everything that was his, and now he's coming back, he's somehow going to live off what the older brother's money is. Right. He's uh, now a parasite. Yeah, and now be a parasite. Now, of course, that's incorrect because we know that the younger brother has said that he's willing to work for his father. Uh, So he's not going to be a parasite. He's actually going to add to the business. But the older brother is thinking in very mean terms and thinking he's going to lose out through having him back. And so we we see that mean-heartedness in contrast even with Esau in the Old Testament and how uh, the father in Jesus' story runs and embraces and kisses uh, the son. Now, there's a further element to that. Scribes in their training were taught to put dots over some words in the Old Testament. Not many, just 15 lots of words, and only five of them in Genesis. And one of them was that word kiss, 
in Genesis 33. What were the dots for? The dots because of a textual debate about, you know, which words should be in. And they, I think we can show, are there by the time of Jesus. So any of the scribes who are trained particularly to know that verse. I mean, they they know Genesis pretty well because they copy it out multiple times, but they particularly know that verse. So the dramatic highlight of Jesus' story, the thing that you would make the dramatic highlight of any film with the greatest music yeah. going on, which was <laughs> the, the, the father running, embracing, kissing the son, yeah. that also is the bit that hits on the highlight of the scribes' training. And so it should be a challenge to them. Yeah, now, whether it, they would it's confronting them, saying, would you do this? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so you also highlight the fact that the father obviously shows a lot of generosity and grace towards his younger son, but there, there's, there's an uncomfortableness to his generosity that oh, you yeah. highlight. Uh, unpack that a little bit. Well, we could be asking ourselves, well, whose money is he being generous with? Mm-hmm. He seems to be, is he being generous with the um, older brother's money? And, or, and you can think, well... How come the older brother's out in the field and everyone's celebrating? Did no one think of sending a message to the older brother to say what's going on? Yeah. Um, and, it's and, pretty easy to, to get in the shoes of the older brother and feel a little bit sorry oh, for him. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, when the father says, bring out the best robe, well, who's the best robe belong to? There's only two possibilities. It's either the father or the older brother. Uh, and he killed the fatted calf, the one that's ready for, for the meal. So I think there is a lot where you can fit, you can be uncomfortable with the father's generosity. And I think that's good. You actually God, say that you think that's deliberate. Yeah, Jesus God, is God, God, God is uncomfortably generous. I mean, the fact that he... He welcomes sinners who've actually sinned against real people. So, you know, I was just reflecting today on um, prison ministry Mm. and how there are people who have really, really harmed other people's lives in big ways and been locked away for a very long time. And then they come to Jesus and their victims are still at large. But they are still suffering and still suffering. And here these people who have been fully accepted by God and are fully forgiven. And that is a very uncomfortable thing to think about that you know the the fact that god has forgiven someone is very awkward for us i mean Mm. people today do not like the thought that god could forgive vladimir putin if he repented Mm. i mean that, that that's just like that goes against so much of what we want to think that god's forgiveness is very very uncomfortable but it comes of course conditional on repentance but fundamentally underwritten by God's uh, by sacrifice on the cross mm. that's that's the key thing and if we see our own sin then we and how much we've been forgiven that should help us appreciate more how God uh, forgives others I think often we're uncomfortable with him forgiving that really big sinner over there because we don't think of our sin as very great yeah so then if you had to summarize for these two different audiences that Jesus sort of has in mind as he's telling this story if you had to summarize, what's the message for each of those audiences that they should be drawing from this parable? What would those be? Well, for those who are um, weighed down with their sin, to know that there is a God who would welcome them back, uh, throw his arms around them, accept them as his child fully, un- uh, unconditionally. And that's so important. They, they need to turn from their sin, but when they turn and come to him, he will receive them instantly. As, as children, not just as slaves or yeah, absolutely, servants. Yeah, yeah. Then I think there are those who, a bit like the older brother, want to work their way uh, and think about their own merits and how deserving and righteous they are. And they're actually 
nurturing resentment towards God their father they, uh, they they feel they're not getting enough from him and I think that that's a challenge because I think a, a lot of people fit into that type a lot of us do think we can earn our way to God and it's a real reminder that you absolutely can't and of course the story ends without a full ending that is you, you you're told that the father goes out to the older brother he reasons with him the father has the last word but it doesn't tell you how the older brother responds yeah why is that why, why well, leave it vague? Uh, um, Firstly, we know how what would happen if the older brother did repent. We know that because of the story of the lost coin. In the story of the lost coin, when the woman finds the coin lost at home, she rejoices. So if this son lost at home were found, there would be joy. Mm. We, we know that, that, that. But it's a great way of leaving the story open-ended so that if you're in that situation it's asking the question how are you going to respond and it's kind of up and to the you invitation's now. there yeah because yeah, we don't we don't know how you're going to respond yeah. yet it's that's uh, fascinating so you've highlighted how this story echoes so many different stories in the book of genesis and, and elsewhere and but then you say actually a lot of jesus's parables are like this in that yeah. they have these echoes they yeah. have these the typology is coming out um what are some, a couple other examples briefly that would well be like that it, with Jesus' story of the two sons, you get this clear reference, I think, to Genesis 18, verse 6, where the father runs, and he seems to be an old man at the time, and the only other old man in the Bible to run is Abraham when he's welcoming the guests, and it runs, and the first words from his mouth is the word quick. That's the first word in Jesus' uh, uh, story, the father says, and then he goes and gets the fatted calf, as in Jesus' story. But in the story of Abraham, it's quick. And then he says, three seers of flour. He says that to Sarah. Now, Jesus' shortest parable is about how the kingdom of heaven is like a woman who gets some yeast, some leaven, and puts it into three seers of flour. And mm. seer is a particular measurement, only occurs a few times in the Old Testament. This, these two passages are the only time you get the words seer, uh, three and seer, and specifically it's flour. So... Um, rather than anything else. And so I think there's a reference there. We can show Jesus thinking about that verse. Um, now that gives you a number, doesn't it? The number three and how it connects with the Old Testament. But there's other times that numbers come from the Old Testament. So for instance, um, where the, the, um, in the parable of the soils, which yields 30, 60 or 100 fold, um, I think the 100 fold is a reference to um, in Genesis 26, where Isaac has a 100 fold. Uh, increase when you have the parable of the talents where the man owes 10,000 talents uh, to that's number doesn't just come from nowhere that's exactly the number that Haman uh, said he would owe to the king Xerxes or Ahasuerus in the book of Esther so you get those sorts of things in Jesus's story of the rich man and Lazarus the rich man is feasting with purple and linen and feasting every day well Purple and linen only occur in one passage in the Old Testament. It's in Esther 1 verse 6. It's also a feast. It's Xerxes' feast. He's a king and he invites all the men of Susa. Uh, so he doesn't have beggars left outside. Uh, and he's a sort of baddie king. Mm. Um, and then it will tell you uh, that uh, this man is feasting every day. Well, there's only a, one other group who feast every day. And I think that's Job's children, Job's sons. And they have a sibling-only feast. They invite their, their sisters round. But then you read that outside 
the rich man, there's this man who's covered with sores. Well, who's the only other person covered with sores in the Old Testament? That's Job. Mm. And of course, he's rich. And he can say he's always welcomed the poor at his table. Mm. So when you do this, when you look at a a parable of Jesus, a teaching of Jesus, and you're often, you're looking at all these details that it's easy for us just to run past and kind of, okay, yeah, there's three guys, uh, who cares? Um, But you're kind of saying, but why? And you're finding these connections. What are the guardrails for doing that? Well, yeah, so I think one of the things about it is how do you tell that something's not random? Well, part of it is frequency. So if we just met the person once and they behave a particular way, we might not be sure that we're correctly analyzing why they did something. Mm. But if we meet them 10 times and they do it more often, we get more confidence that this is part of their personality. Now, it's the same with a feature of a text. The more frequent it is, the more confidence you get that this is real. So... I think the fact that you find this in a lot of Jesus' stories, in multiple Gospels, these references to the Old Testament, that assures you they're there. When you find that there are multiple ones which apply, refer to some of the same texts, that gives you some reassurance. You and see then, multiple connections to a certain Old Testament story. Yeah, and, and then you actually see that there may be multiple ways in which the texts are used the same way. Um, So all of these things can add together, but yeah, there there need to be safeguards. And at the end of the day, what we shouldn't be doing with these things is making equations, this is that. Mm. So I I think we can show lots of illusions. But sometimes when you look at modern films, you can get scenes which echo each other, but we don't want to say the two scenes are each other. Right. Or that one is a picture of the other. It's rather in the nature of art that you have some of these sorts of uh, softer illusions. So we should expect that in any fine storyteller like Jesus, there will be some elements where you might not be fully certain what uh, is intended here. I mean, there's a certain open-endedness to stories. I'm struck by the way that you actually have done this is so often you see a connection there and you're going back and you're having to read and understand more of the broader story that that connection is is in. And and that helps you to interpret perhaps or add a new layer to the meaning of the New Testament parable. Yes. And, and, but at the end of the day, these, these stories are very powerful because they, not everything every loose end is tied up like you don't know how the older brother responds um so and and you're you're not always sure in an old testament story even what's really going on as in you're told in i think in the joseph story you've got a situation where when joseph's brothers report back to jacob on the things that the leader in egypt has said they give a different account one time from another time. Now, what are you supposed to look at that? Are they lying or, or not? And, and again, it, you're not meant to go away with an absolutely firm conclusion on that. Mm. So, so the, the text can leave you with these questions. It doesn't have to answer every single one of them. Yeah, yeah. I'm also just struck by how undergirding all of this and all of the attention that we should pay to, in particular, Jesus' parables, but even the whole New Testament is like this to some extent, is this conviction that Jesus is a really good teacher and that he has a lot he's doing with this. And every word, literally every word matters. Yes. So, I mean, a good example in the 
parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Of course, the rich man's not named, Lazarus is named, so one's more important to God at one level. <laughs> but then it tells you the poor man died and was carried by, by the angels to Abraham's side or bosom, and the rich man died and was buried. What it has not told you is that the poor man was buried. So it raises a question in your mind, well, was the poor man buried? We know the rich man was buried, and that was a big public event probably, and you know, a very exciting- A lot of people attending A lot it. of people attending, but- to conclude that the poor man wasn't buried is overstating. It actually just leaves that question in your mind. I wonder if he was buried. Mm. <laughs> um, and so that's the brilliance of the story because it leaves that question genuinely open. And I think that's a, a masterful element of storytelling mm. uh, that you don't feel that you need to tie up everything. Yeah, and, and it causes you to ask questions and contemplate things in a way that even lingers with us sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and you're told, for instance, the poor man was laid at the gate of the rich man. Well, oh, so that, that just in that phrase, it's telling you he probably is not fully mobile. Someone's had to carry him there. But again, it doesn't tell you that. Mm -hmm. uh, it just, it, it gets you there by an indirect route yeah. with an absolute economy of words. Yeah, and that's it's a, obviously a well-known truism of good storytelling is, is you show, you don't tell. And so yeah. often Jesus is doing that yeah. masterfully in these parables. Yeah. And the poor man dies first. Poor men usually do. What's he die of? Is he dying of hunger? or his sores, it doesn't tell you. So uh, it's just, yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Well, Peter, thank you so much for helping us to dig oh, into pleasure. this beautiful story and, and help us to appreciate not just the story, but Jesus himself. Thank you. That was Peter Williams on the story of the prodigal son and the genius of Jesus. For more, be sure to check out his new book called The Surprising Genius of Jesus, What the Gospels Reveal About the Greatest Teacher. Pick up a print copy of the book for 30% off or get the ebook or audiobook for 50% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. For more audio content like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with a friend and leaving us a review. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's Word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.